Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. Uh, as you know, we've been in a uh, sermon series over the last four weeks. This is week four uh, in Romans chapter 12. It has been a sermon series that we have entitled, A Delight to Be Around. The question that we've been asking in this series, as we've just been studying this chapter, is how does God want us to represent him? We've been seeing it in the scriptures that God wants his people, the church, to be his representatives and his ambassadors in this world, that we would represent his kingdom. And so we're asking the question in this series, well, how does God want us to do that? Not with just the words that we say, but in our attitudes and in our temperament, in the way that we treat other people. And so we've been studying Romans 12 because I just think this chapter gives us a really good answer to that question. And the the conclusion that I've come up with and I think we've come up with as we've been studying this is, it's been, well, God calls us to be people who are a delight to be around. That, that when the gospel begins to, to take root inside of our hearts, and it begins to change us from the inside out, that we become people that are easy to be around, are a delight to be around, right? Because Romans teaches us that no one seeks God. No one is good. There's Everyone is in need of God's grace and mercy and the work of Jesus on the cross. And so as that begins to take root in us, we we learn not to take ourselves too seriously. We learn not to see ourselves as wise in our own eyes. We learn not to be judgmental of other people, but to understand that God is seeking to save and grow everyone. As we think about God's grace in our lives and, and how he's so generously reached out to us, so generously saved us, it, it turns us into generous people, gracious people, people who want to see others flourish and come to know Jesus. And so we've been rehearsing this, how the truths of Romans 1 to 11 enable us as they take root in our heart to live out the commands of Romans chapter 12. In the first week of this series, uh, I read from a quote from a book by Dallas Willard. The book's called The Renovation of the Heart. Great book. And one of the things that Dallas Willard challenges us with, that he says kind of in the modern church, one of the things that we are really good at is being Christian. And what he means by that is by explaining what we believe, kind of identifying ourselves uh, with Christ in the Bible and, and, and kind of differentiating ourselves from the rest of the world. But one of the things that the modern church maybe has minored in is just Christ-likeness. That it's easy to identify ourselves as Christian, but it's more difficult to live a Christ-like life. And in the way that we interact and treat other people to do that with Christ-likeness. One of the things we explored in, in week one and week two and week three is that Right doctrine without Christ-like character isn't going to represent the kingdom to the world. That we do need both in order to represent Jesus. But you know what the Bible says is the most potent way 
that we as the church represent the kingdom of God to the world so that the world may know that Christ has come and he has come to save them. The Bible is actually really clear on the main way the church is able to do that. Two scriptures, I'll show you. The first one, John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other inside the church. Just as I have loved you, how has Jesus loved us? Radical grace, when we didn't deserve it. Giving of himself for us, right? Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It's the love in the church, the way we treat each other in the church. Us being a delight to be around inside the church does something to display the kingdom to the world. Another one, John 17, 21, a few chapters later in the Gospel of John. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as probably hours before he's arrested, and he prays. For the church, he's praying for you and me right here. He says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. He's praying to the Father as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus is saying that directly connected to the world believing that Jesus has come from God is that the church is united together, that they're one. It's how they treat each other, love each other, care for each other inside the church that displays the gospel to the world. It's the most potent way that we represent his kingdom is how we do things in here. You know, and I've been thinking about that and going, why is that the case? Why is it the case that how we treat each other in here has such a missional impact outside our walls? Is it just that we are a good example? Is it just that, man, the way that we live in here, it's so countercultural that people will see that and long for that. And so therefore they believe or they might be compelled to believe. I think that's a huge piece of it. Absolutely. We are differentiated from the world. But I think there's also another reason. I think there's another reason. I think it's because we as ambassadors of Christ, we as representatives of God's kingdom, as we live in this world, represent him in this world, in this broken, sinful, harsh, difficult world, I think that we need a place to heal and recharge. We need a place where the divisions and the tactics and the way the world works, it doesn't, it's not welcome in here. We do things differently relationally in here so that the saints can come, recharge, be healed, be encouraged, and sent back out to love their neighbors because their faith was just built up because they were with their brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a huge piece of it. Is that when we interact with each other, when we're here, do those things happen? Are we a delight to be around with each other? And then when we come in, are we filled with courage? Is our faith built up? Are our wounds bound? Is that the right word? Binded, bound, are our wounds bound? So that we can go back out 
and represent God's kingdom. Today, we're gonna ask the question, what does a Christ-like church look like? What does a church look like that's a delight to be around? What does a church look like that when we come in after a week of being outside in the world where we can heal and recharge and be encouraged so that we can go back out, what does that look like? And I think Romans 12 gives us four characteristics of a Christ-like church. Four things that I believe will help us to heal and recharge from the week so that we can continue to follow Jesus and represent him to the world. I'm gonna jump in. This is one of those sermons that I feel like I have so much in me to say, so hopefully it makes sense. First characteristic of a Christ-like church is this. A Christ-like church is a generous church. A Christ-like church is filled with people who are generously minded. I want to read in Romans 12. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. This is a section of, Romans we haven't, of Romans 12 we haven't read yet in the series. Paul says this. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them in the church for one another, these gifts that we've been given. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What Romans 12 is teaching us is that the church, right, is a body, And each of us individually are members of that body. And it's designed to operate where each and every one of those members are very generously minded with the things that God has given them. God has given each of us all kinds of things that we've been called to to bring to the church, to give so that this church may flourish, so that we can heal, we can recharge, we can be an example to the world. So there's all kinds of things that God has given us that we bring forward. This is not an exhaustive list in Romans 12. It's a list of examples that then causes us to keep going. Well, what other examples could be included? So God gives us skill sets. He gives us skills and abilities that we bring to the church and we generously offer them. There are so many examples of this in our church. Like just off the top of my head, like I see Amanda Lamont over there, right? And she's up here singing and playing the violin. You should see her. She headlines a bluegrass band. Did y'all know that? All right, and so she's up here generously using her skills to lead the the church in worship. 
And there's so many other things that she does. She's always thinking of people and ways to serve them and needs to meet. I mean, she's always doing that because she's generous. Or another one that comes to mind is the Linkow family. I, they're here every Sunday morning. I always wonder, are they, are they ever not serving? And they're here, but the way that they're doing, they're using their skills, their skills in engineering and organization and making things better. And they're always, Nate's always repairing stuff. And he, you know, because all our stuff is breaking. And they're just using their skills generously. Why? Because they love you. They love this church. It could be our finances. It says here, the, the one who gives to do that generously, to contribute to the needs of the saints. All of us have been called to give of our finances toward the mission of the church. But there are some of us that God has entrusted to us a lot of those. And he says, hey, these are things that you can bring to the church and use generously for the mission of the church. I think about experience that we might gain from our workplaces. So I think of, for example, Kate Reen, who helps us in our gap ministry along with Megan Holland. Uh, Kate Reen is a social worker by trade, so she has helped us make that ministry better. Megan Holland is a hospice nurse, and so she's helped us care for people really well who are vulnerable. Like people who use their skills. I think of Aria Dizel, who used to have a career in the production industry as an executive producer. So she helps us produce stuff because we didn't know how to do that when the pandemic hit. So she's brought her skills from her work and generously offered them to the church. Man, I think about spiritual disciplines. Some of us are better at that than others. I think of Kathleen Ferris and Christino and Lori Holland, and if anyone else joins them, and I'm forgetting you, please forgive me who every single week meet together and pray for this church. I've often said that uh, some people have asked me, hey, you know, how, what, how is it that Grace Hill was just able to do so well through the pandemic? And I've said it's because I have three ladies in our church that pray every week for it. It's the only answer I have. They're so generous with their time, generous with their uh, gift of prayer for this church. And so we are called to be generously minded people that when God gifts us, gifts us with something, we are excited not to just use it for ourselves. We can do that, but to come and bless God's people and to bless his mission with the things that God has given us. And you know what I think is the hardest thing to be generous with? in our culture, right? It'd be easy to say money, all right? But I actually don't think that's the case. I think it's easy to be generous with our money. And this church is very generous when it comes to that. I think the most difficult thing to be generous with is our time. Our time, it's so scarce. And what a precious resource. And oftentimes it's hard to, to think about how do I generously give my time to others? How do I generously give my time to the church when there's so many other things going on, especially when you have a family or big career responsibilities or other things on your plate. And sometimes we wish that the church and the ministry could be more efficient in those things. But let's review a lot of the things that we've learned over the last few weeks, right? What we've learned over the last few weeks is that God has chosen to use us to represent his kingdom, to make his kingdom grow. Now, God could use a more efficient method. 
He could use a less messy method. He could choose to snap his finger and boom, his kingdom would just spread. But in his wisdom, he has decided to use a messy, busy church to represent him in this world because God is most worshiped and honored and glorified when we give him our most precious gift and that is our time. And he asks for our first and our best, not the scraps. You know who I think about this? Uh, who I think about in our church with this is one of our pastors, Evan. You know, I'm a culprit in this. Oftentimes I'll make fun of Evan, that he's long-winded. Or I'll make fun of Evan, that his meetings go long. Because they do. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, his meetings go long or that because he just talks a lot. But you know what I've realized with Evan? It's not that he talks a lot. It's that he's easy to talk to. And he's really good at asking questions. And he really cares. And so it's easy to just dive with him. Every week that happens. We have like a two-hour meeting on Wednesdays, and it goes way long. Why? Because he's, he's a really caring person, and he generously gives you his time. He, gener- he is generous with his dinner table, him and Stacy and their family. And if you've ever sat with them, I promise you leave cared for because he's generous with his time. And see, these are the things, when we are a church, that everyone's coming in and generously giving of the things that God has given them, and everyone is generously minded, then everyone receives. And everyone can rest, and everyone can recharge, and everyone can heal from the weak. And we're generous to one another because we have a generous God. Can I remind you of Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I can honestly say this. I want generosity for you, not from you. I'm not up here trying to over-spiritualize generosity to build our giving and to build our serving teams, but if y'all wanna do both those things, I won't complain. But I honestly want it for you. Because a life of going, I wanna give of what I have for others is a joyful life. And a life of how can I just use this for myself is a life of fear that you're gonna lose it all. And so the first characteristic that we have is that we are a generous church. Here's characteristic number two from Romans 12, an encouraging church, an encouraging church. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This word honor here in the text literally means to esteem or confer value. So we're trying to outdo one another in showing one another how valuable you are. That's what the text is telling us to do inside the church. And we're called to do this because we have an encouraging God. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. It's the same Greek word as encouragement. So you can translate this, the God of all encouragement, 
who encourages us in our affliction so that we may be able to encourage those who are in any affliction with the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by God. An encouraging church. You know, I've done this a few times, uh, twice with teams that I've taken down to the Dominican Republic and once with um, a lot of our staff and elders and leaders on one of our staff retreats. And uh, we've done this thing where I've had everyone get in a circle and I just tell them straight up, what we're about to do is gonna be awkward. But we're gonna go around this circle and every one of you, what you're gonna do is you're gonna, you're gonna look, so it'll be like, if it's my turn, I'm gonna look at, or I'm sorry, if it's my turn, I'm gonna, we're gonna go around the circle and each person in the circle is going to encourage me. And then we're going to go to the next person. All right, each person's going around, and they're going to encourage that person. We're going to talk about what we like about you. We're going to talk about how we've seen God use you. We're going to talk about the reasons why we're thankful for you. And it's so awkward. Like when I tell people we're about to do this, everyone's staring at me, either angry, deer in the headlights, get me out of here. But every single time I've done it, it's ended in tears for everyone because every one of us has a voice in our head that tells us why people aren't thankful for us, that tells us what people don't like about us, that's always taking courage away from us. And we live in a culture that says it's awkward to encourage people and it's arrogant to receive it. And so all of us are walking around with an encouragement deficit. Voices telling us this is why people would rather be around someone else And yet we have things we can say to encourage one another. And so every single time I've done that, it's been like if I could take spiritual adrenaline and put it in a syringe and inject it into someone, it's exactly what happens. They feel the love of God. They feel the love of their brothers and sisters. They're encouraged in their faith. They're built up to go and serve God with more zeal because they were given courage by their brothers and sisters. And Romans 12 is saying, outdo one another in doing that. Outdo one another in it. Like, compete. See see who's best at honoring one another, encouraging one another. Let's all come into here looking for people to encourage. You know? And it's awkward. Like, I want to encourage Luke. Sorry, Luke, it's just on my mind. But it's like, I'm apologizing but it's his first time going solo on the soundboard and he's doing an awesome job. I'm so proud of you, Luke. Like, thanks for stepping up. I know it's scary. I've been there. Or I see like the stack houses here. Sorry if this is too much, but who like cared for a little baby for almost a year as a foster child and placed him into a home with his siblings because they knew that was what best for him and it hurts. I'm just so proud of you guys for doing that. I don't know where you are. I think you're here. But I want to encourage you in that. You did something that's going to change that child's life. And church, where our nation's going, where this culture's going, if we don't learn to have a culture of encouragement, then it's not going to be a delight to be here. We've got to build each other up. We've got to verbalize these things. We've got to reject the culture of it's awkward and it's arrogant to do this because we need it. And we have a God who encourages us so that we can encourage one another. Number three, the third characteristic of a Christ-like church is a lowly church. 
a lowly church. Romans 12, verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I use the word lowly because that's a word that Jesus uses to describe himself. He says, Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's a great book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, who when he tries to describe what does Jesus mean by this word lowly? And what do I mean by a lowly church? Let me just read a few things of what he says. He says, the point is saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prereqs, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. Verse 28 of Matthew 11 of our passage tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. It says in quotes, all who labor and are heavy laden. There's your qualification. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment required. And he says, I will give you rest. Lowly, what I mean by that is that are we a church that is approachable, accessible? A church that is a lowly church is one where every person is welcome no matter what. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your politics. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your wounds, your appearance. It doesn't matter ways that you've offended people in the past. It doesn't matter about the, the money that you have. It doesn't matter your appearance and if you smell bad and if you have the means to take a shower every day or not. A lowly church is one that becomes accessible to all. A lowly church is a church that means that we're available, we seek to understand, and we seek to bind wounds first. That's the first thing we do. Bind wounds, understand, welcome in. Where's your story? We want to understand who you are. A lowly church is a church where people who are hurt and hurting can come and begin the process of being restored There's people here this morning that have already given a hug, and I know you're hurting. I'm really glad you're here. I hope it's a place that you feel welcome. You know, my heart for having a lowly church is this. I, I want to build a lowly church before we build an impressive one. And that wasn't always the case in my heart. Of course, I always said I wanted to have a church that Everyone was welcome. But there's a lot of things that can come before that. 
And I can honestly say now, I want a lowly one before an impressive one, right? If we're focused on scaling and meticulous production and flawless programming and perfect efficiency and, and, and all of these things, then I think we're going to miss those who are burdened and heavy laden. And I'd rather be a smaller church that is lowly than a larger church where being lowly could impact the bottom line. Lowly church accessible. People are seen. If you trace the Gospels, Jesus sees the lowly. Last one, last characteristic of a Christ-like church is this, is an elastic church. Elastic. Romans 12, verses 16 to 18 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What do I mean by elastic? If you think about like an elastic exercise band or something. A church and individual relationships in the church that when tension is applied, it can stretch, it can bend, but it won't break. And how many relationships have we had in our lives, maybe in or outside the church, where it it doesn't feel like elastic, it just feels like a brittle wooden stick that with just a little bit of tension, it pops. Could you imagine a relationship with Jesus that was not elastic? Romans 7, read this with me for just a second. Verses 18 to 25. Like, look at what Paul, how Paul describes his relationship with God. He says, and I know, this is Paul speaking, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it. Anyway, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Have you ever felt that way? I love God's with all of my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. The power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. What he's saying is thank God that the minute I mess up, God does, the relationship doesn't break. There's elasticity because there's grace in this relationship. Jesus is slowly changing me. And grace upon grace means that I continue to change over and over again. Could you imagine a relationship with Jesus where he's not generous and he's not encouraging and he's not lowly and he's not elastic with us when we don't get it all right? That's every other religion in the world. You realize that, right? You do these things. If you don't, it breaks. But that's not how God loves us and cares for us. And yet, is that how we treat each other in the church sometimes? I just wonder how many, how many little 
brittle sticks broke, relationships in the church, I'm talking church at large, everywhere broke over the 2020 political season. Just brittle. No elasticity. No generosity. No seeking to encourage. No being lowly and understanding each other. Just broke like that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this German theologian and martyr. He talks about the three stages of Christian maturity and the relationship to the church. And he says in stage one, it's when you come to know Christ, this is, this is kind of, he's being very general here, all right? But in stage one, you come to know Christ and you really begin to dig into his word, to understand it. And, and what happens is you begin to see this dichotomy between this and the church. And you go, there's a bunch of hypocrites over there. Like, they're not living this out. And so stage one is you begin to really understand the standard that God calls us to, and you become very judgmental of the church, and so you decide to distance yourself from the church. You're wondering, can I really be a part of that? That's stage one of maturity. Stage two of maturity is you begin to follow Jesus more, and you begin to see these things in your own life and how you are a hypocrite. And so you begin to feel shame and shame keeps you from really engaging in the church because you look at them and you go, man, they have it all together. But look at my life. I'm a wreck. That's stage two of maturity. But he says stage three of maturity is you realize that God is graciously molding and shaping and changing you and he's elastic with you. And so that you see that fruit in your life. And then you begin to look at the church and you go, man, it's the same thing with them. Is it messy? Yes. Is it perfect? No. But God's changing it too. And we're all in process under God's grace. Actually, I want to re-engage with the church as a force of redemption and change and encouragement, not as someone who's judgmental. That's stage three of maturity. And I think we have a lot of people in the church at large stuck in stage one. They've got lots of knowledge of the scripture. They really understand and they look around themselves and all they see is what everyone's doing wrong. Like I can, you just tell me right now, I can tell you 14 things that church is doing wrong and that person's doing wrong and what's wrong with that person's theology and it's just boom, we're wrong, wrong, wrong. And that's a very immature place to be as a follower of Jesus. Because there's no elasticity there. And thank God that's not how Jesus deals with us. In the third stage, we're no longer wise in our own eyes. And so there can be elasticity. You know, I think about my marriage. My wife and I will celebrate 13 years of marriage this year. Is that right? 13, 12, 13. And um, I had to double check. She's standing, she's right there. You know, our marriage has not always been perfect. We've had lots of rocky years. Um, But I feel like our marriage is flourishing right now. And one of the reasons why I feel that way is I think we've grown in elasticity. We just don't get on to each other like we used to. We let each other mess up. We let each other make mistakes. We let each other lash out and we talk about it and we talk about how it hurt. But it's just elasticity there. And so the relationship flourishes. We both become better at loving and serving one another because elasticity is there, not not this rigid relationship. Elasticity. I need to conclude here. I'm I'm gonna invite the band up. 
But here's where I want to close. These four characteristics of a Christ-like church. Generous, encouraging, lowly, and elastic. I want you to do something for me real quick. Just close your eyes and in your own heart, in your own mind, here's a question I just want you to answer for yourself right now. I want you to think of a relationship in your life. And I realize I'm about to ask a really hard question for some of you. I want you to think about a relationship in your life. It could be a parent. It could be a friend, a family member, someone in the church. A relationship in your life, and they displayed these four characteristics. They were a generous person with you, always willing to give. And this person always built you up, was always encouraging and lowly. They were easy to come to, approachable, accessible. They loved you. They didn't care what had gone on. They wanted to be there for you and elastic. You felt safe in that relationship, even when things got hard. Did you think? Do you have a relationship in your life or have you had a relationship in your life that is comprised of those four characteristics? I think one of the marks of the brokenness of this world is I think that's a difficult question for most of us to answer. And it's God's call upon the church. We need to be these things for each other. We need a place to recharge and heal and to be built up in the love of God so that we can continue representing his kingdom in this world. It's what Jesus wants for us. A relationship marked by these four things is a relationship that is safe and secure. It's a secure base and a safe haven for us, for us to come to be built up so that we can go out and take risks for God's kingdom so that we can come back and be built up again. We have to do this for one another. It's how the world will know that Jesus has come to save them. And so my prayer for you And my prayer for myself and my prayer for this church is that we would be a church filled with people who are generous, encouraging, lowly, and elastic. And I encourage you to take those four words and ask yourself, do you embody these things? Who's someone today that you could go encourage? It will be awkward because we have to change the culture, but let's change it. What's a relationship that you've been rigid in and you need to start being elastic? Show grace. Let them grow. Let's pray and reflect on that. God, we want to represent you. We want to represent your kingdom. Would you grow these fruits within us today, God? And God, we know that these fruits grow when we realize and we begin to believe that you are all of these things to us. And if you were not all of these things to us, we would be lost. You simply call upon us to love one another in the way that you have loved us. Help us with this, God. Convict us. Oh, but God, I pray you would encourage us. Build us up so that we can represent you. In Christ's name.
Amen.